Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Glad to have brother and sister Mason back with us after vacation. Amen. Back in the house of the Lord. Amen. We miss them and appreciate them. Uh, we can say that we had the Mason Jr. crew and did a tremendous job in their absence. And uh, so we're, we're in good hands. Amen. Remember a day that that wasn't there. Remember day that wasn't there. And so I guarantee you I appreciate it. Amen. Both, both sides of it. Both sides of that Mason coin I appreciate. So, amen. And I don't know if you've noticed here lately, but as things are blooming out in the landscape and stuff, we've had about three or so rose bushes been replaced because they kind of died off. And Brother Fred took upon himself to do all of that. And they're looking nice out there, blooming rather than just a stiff branch sticking out of the ground. Amen. I want to thank him for taking, amen, time and diligence to... Uh, take out the old, put in the new, do some transplanting. And uh, always every year in the spring, we get more than plants in the spring. Seems like the weeds just like grow almost better than some of our plants do. And uh, whenever you got to go through and touch all of that, take it out, it takes time. It really does. And uh, he did all that prior to Easter, making sure everything was going to look good and such. So appreciate him, amen, for taking time to do that. Uh, because it does take time. It takes time. Amen. And work involved. So appreciate him for that. John chapter number 18. I'm probably just going to read. I kind of got a lengthy reading. And uh, to avoid you having to stand here the whole time I read it, I'll probably read maybe about three verses. We'll pray and I'll let you be seated. And I'll continue reading. All right? Someone, my wife's saying sounds good. She must want to put her... Anybody got an ottoman that she could use? I mean, it's just, no, I'm just joking. Starting with verse number 12, the Bible says, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. For he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. I'll continue reading after we pray. I'm going to talk tonight about trial and denial. Trial and denial. Amen. Let's pray tonight. Father, we're grateful, Lord, to be here. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity to come into the house of the Lord. God, I pray, oh Lord, today be able to speak to us, Lord, through your word word is quick it's powerful it's sharper than any two-edged sword god we need lord god the work of the word in our life tonight god will not fail to thank you or praise you for it in the name of jesus christ that i pray amen and amen the church say amen you may be seated this evening in jesus name jesus really leading up to calvary and to his crucifix endured a series of a couple of trials 
series of a couple of trials, one being by his own people, the Jews, the other being by the Roman government. And so the trials that he faced through the Jews were primarily through Annas and another one by the name of Caiaphas. The ones that he suffered on the side of the Romans was uh, by Pilate. And then Pilate sends him to Herod and Herod sends him back to Pilate. And so there's a couple of trials or a series of two different trials from two, two different peoples that was taking place in Jesus's life. And so our story tonight, and I got to remember to read, don't I? I just now thought about that. Our story tonight, because I'm about, what I'm about ready to say, I'm like, they have no idea what about this. Our story tonight kind of waffles back and forth between Jesus's trial and Peter's denial as I continue with verse number 15. Nice segue there. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door unto Peter, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He saith, I am not. And the servants and officers stood there, who made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world, I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whether the Jews always resort, and I and in secret have I said nothing. Why sayest thou, why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What I have said unto them, behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said therefore unto him, Art not thou also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter cut off, saith, Did I see thee? Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately the cock crew. So waffling back and forth here in these this section of scripture is between Jesus' trial before Annas and also Peter's denial. While Jesus is being questioned about his disciples and being questioned about his doctrine. Peter is being asked about his identity, Peter's identity. And Jesus, we see very clearly, he doesn't hide anything. He doesn't hide what he taught. He doesn't hide who followed him or who was in his circle. Uh, he doesn't seem to have ever done that sort of thing. Yet on the other hand, Peter seems to be concealing something. Uh, Peter's words even earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter number 13 is that he spoke to the Lord on one hand and said, Lord, I'll lay down my life for thy sake. And that seems to be very distant right now, just an echo and a shallow drum, so to speak, uh, at this moment in time because Peter will not acknowledge being Jesus' disciples. Again, please note, 
that those that came to apprehend the Lord and take him away were both Jews and also Gentiles. And note the process there in verses 12 through 13. The Bible says that they took Jesus, they bound Jesus, and they led Jesus away. And then later you'll find in verse number 24 it says, uh, this is the Net Bible, but you can see it there in verse 24 in your King James Version as well. Then Annas sent him, speaking of Jesus, still tied up is the way that the Net Bible. So, so he, he was bound when he left the garden. He was bound whenever he was before Annas. He's bound as he's being sent from Annas to Caiaphas to be seen before him. So he's bound all along the way. Now, here's the amazing thing about that to me. Whenever I think of Jesus and think of other scriptures, the Bible told us in John chapter number 8 that ye shall know the truth. Many of you can finish it. And the truth shall make you free. Jesus said emphatically in John 14 that I am the way, the, and the life. And so when they bound, so to speak, Jesus, they bound truth. And when they bound truth, they tied the very thing that could make them free. They bound their freedom. When they bound him, they bound, in essence, themselves. However, it only just took three short days for them to realize that truth can't be bound. Bruised, buried, banished. Because it's going to get loose. It's going to get back up. It's still going to even have the power after all of that to still liberate mankind and bring freedom into their life. And so this is the power of truth. This is the power of Jesus. And so the question that we must ask ourselves is this, and what we even see depicted here in the Scripture is then what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? Much is gleaned from what we can do with Jesus. Amen. In the scriptures, we have already seen that Judas uh, met him with a kiss, a kiss of betrayal, mind you, that there will be others, no doubt, throughout New Testament scripture and even still yet today that will embrace Jesus with arms of sincerity and love and appreciation, wanting and desiring the Lord. Others, though, will be like those of the garden that came to arrest him. They're going to take him. They're going to bind him. They're going to lead him away from others and lead him away even from themselves. But the fact of the matter remains the same. What you do with Jesus is an unmistakable sign of your relationship with Jesus. It's all according to what you do with him. And you can turn there. The media was probably surprised today. I just gave him two lines of scripture. But I have in here a whole lot more. I just don't go there. I got it referenced in brackets after each little section, and it's like ding, 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 ding. So if you were to look at 1 Samuel, you would see the story of whenever the Philistines went to war, one of the times they went to war with the Israelites, and from that war that they had with the Israelites, the Bible says that the Israelites had brought in the Ark of the Covenant to that war, believing it was going to give them the upper hand and the victory and it was going to rally the troops. And by the time of the war's end, the Bible describes that the Philistines had taken away the Ark of the Covenant. This is during the same time that Phineas' wife gave birth to a child and she named it Ichabod.
to Bob because the glory of the Lord had departed. All these series of events that took place. So the Philistines took the ark of God away from the Israelites. They set the ark of God in the temple, their temple of Dagon, which was a false god, set him there, the Ark of the Covenant there, which was, again, the Ark of the Covenant was a representation of the very presence and spirit of the Lord because that was the place that God told Moses, I'll come down between the two cherubim upon that mercy seat, I'll commune with you, and so it was associated with the presence of God. And so they took that, and they set it in their temple, Dagon, that false god. And each morning when they got up, they go into the temple and there's Dagon slap over on his face. Hands, you know, just kind of disassembled and everything, just totally in disarray. And a lot of terrible things happen to the different cities that the ark of God went when it wasn't among God's people. Whenever it was in the Philistine country, the different cities that it went, there were horrible things happened. There were destruction. There were emrods that were coming up on the people. And emrods is associated in rhymes with what... If you ever read this in your Bible, I was just having a conversation uh, with a pastor's wife in Deluge concerning this. She's saying, I read this the other day. She said, you know what emrods are? I said, yes, emrods are, are what we would term hemorrhoids. Yeah, they were plagued with this. Can we just do a little commercial real quick concerning this? What is so amazing about this? I know we're live, but listen to me. This is scripture. What is so amazing about this is where they sent the ark of God back over to the, the Israelites. They said they needed to make images of the emrods. Seriously. And, sent, and I'm thinking, who got that job? I mean, he drew the short straw. I don't know what's going. That's just as a side note. But there was all kinds of things of destruction and things that were happening. Amen. And you thought the Bible wasn't interesting. Amen. Now you go to read the Bible, Preparation H on your nightstand. The Ark of the Covenant so was passed around to five major Philistine cities and everywhere it went seemed to be trouble within the Philistines. And this no doubt happened to a certain degree because it was among people that was not in covenant with God. It was among people that were serving false gods, uh, polytheistic type people. Uh, they lived lives, of course, that opposed everything that the ark of God stood for and yet they attempted to house it. And so, in essence, the ark of God being in all these places was almost bringing judgment to the places that it was at uh, that was not after the pattern of the Lord. And the response of these different cities and towns and the people that had the ark of God and all these things going on was this. And you can read of this in 1 Samuel 5, 7. Their, their question was this. And they, they started to see what was happening among them. And they said, hey, don't, don't bring the ark of God over to Ekron or don't bring it over here to this city. said, the ark of God, it, it's not going to abide with us. As a matter of fact, they came to a place that they began to ask a question. You can see this in 1 Samuel. They're like, what are we going to do with the ark of God? So put it in the terms that it's associated with. What are we going to do with the presence of the Lord? For our New Testament use, what are we going to do with Jesus? 
What are we going to do with the presence of the Lord? And the Bible says they finally came to the conclusion this is what they would do. We're going to send away the ark of God. We're going to send it away. And they sent away the ark of God. Many of you may know the story, but they made a new cart. They sent the ark. They put the ark of God on it. They had that cart led by a couple of milch kind, the Bible speaks, to take it back over into the Israelites. Now notice, as these milch kind are going over to the Israelites, they're coming up on the city of Beth Shemesh. And as they are approaching the city of the Beth Shemesh, the reapers are out there in the fields and they are reaping. The Bible says plainly, you can read of it in 1 Samuel 6, 13, that the reapers of Beth Shemesh saw the Ark of the Covenant coming. And the scripture plainly says, when they saw it coming, they rejoiced to see it. Right away, we got two different camps of people. One that's glad to see it go and another one glad to see it come. And it's all based upon their relationship. It's all based upon their relationship. And the city of Beth Shemesh is a, is a city of priests. Now, look here. The Philistines dreaded it, and they sent it away. The Beth Shemites, Beth Shemeshites, I guess, got to get all the, the, all the syllables in there, welcomed it, and they rejoiced. But even there, look at this. Even there, among these priests, they came to a place that they sought to send it away. The Bible says the, the men of Beth Shemesh came around the Ark of the Covenant, and what do they do? They grab a hold of the mercy seat, that lid of the Ark, and they crack that baby to look inside, and boom, 50,070 men lost their lives because they tampered with the mercy. God didn't, God didn't deal kindly then with that. And so they're like, we're going to send you on too. So you really have people at different stages in relationship with God. They was glad to see it come, right? They loved to see it come, but when they started tampering with the mercy and things went awry, it's like, we'll send you on. The Bible says they called for men from Kirjath-Jerim, we got all the greatest names ever going on right now. From Kirjath-Jerim to come down to get the Ark of God. And the Bible says they came down and they grabbed it for Samuel 7, now you're in. And they came and got the Ark of God. And the Bible says when they got it, they sanctified a man to keep it. They sanctified a man to guard it, to heed it. To, the word literally means to hedge it about with thorns. And the Bible says it was there at that location for a very long time. For 20 years, the ark of God was at Kirjath-Jerim without incident because someone observed it. They didn't live in opposition to it. They, they, they didn't sit it among other gods they had. They didn't meddle with the mercy. They just observed it. They lived with it. So what are you going to do? You know, we all have a response of what we're going to do with the Lord, what we're going to do with his presence. And what we do with his presence says much about our relationship with him. Some people want to make him a part of other gods in their life. Other people are happy to see it unless they want to tamper with it a little bit. And if that's a no-no, then forget it all. But then there's others that will keep it Guard it, observe it. 
and it stays for a long time without any incident because they're living in harmony with it. Amen. And so when we look in the scripture, and, and it, it, I'm not just necessarily calling out these verses, but I read them all in your hearing tonight. The Bible says that Jesus was first sent to Annas and then on to Caiaphas. You'll notice in the New Testament that both Annas and Caiaphas are both called high priests. They're both called the high priests. Now, it's like, you know, one either is or one isn't, but Annas and Caiaphas are part of the same family. They're, they, are, they are known for their greed. They're known for their wealth. They're known for their power. Uh, Annas has four sons. Each one of those sons served in the capacity of high priests. Caiaphas was one of Annas' son, Annas's son-in-laws. And so this is really a family thing that's going on here. But during this time, there was a corruption in the priesthood. High priests normally, under Jewish law, served for life. They served till they died. You know, that's the reason why you say, you see in the Old Testament, Aaron taken up to the mount, the garment's stripped off of him, he's dead and the garments are put on his son. They serve for life. But you have the, the interruption, you have the interference of the Roman government right now within the Jewish people. And they, they, their influence altered the character of the position of the high priesthood. And so Roman, Rome oftentimes replaced the Jewish priests quite often, though his office was to be regarded for a lifetime in the eyes and through the eyes of the Jews. And so we see Annas and Caiaphas both called high priests because understand this, though another person would be put in as high priest by Rome, the Jews saw whoever was high priest always high priest until they died. Not only that, it's, it's similar to how whenever like a president of the United States is no longer in office, Guess what we still call that individual? Mr. President. Still call them Mr. President. Although their time and tenure is gone, there is something that has stamped their life that's never going to leave. And so we, we see this dual thing of calling both high priests. And so with this, Annas, though, being the father of all these sons and being uh, the father-in-law to Caiaphas, Annas was really the power behind the throne in Jerusalem. Whoever the current high priest was, they may have been the high priest, but the power behind it was still Daddy Annas, so to speak. Now, this is where we're getting to why Jesus went to Annas first, why he was taken to Annas first. You remember whenever Jesus went into the temple and there were people there with animals and there were money changers and it seemed like extortion was taking place in the temple? And he drove them out, right? Flipped over the tables like, yeah, there's where the Lord got angry. Right? Everybody's like, well, the Lord, that's where everybody goes. Oh, the Lord got angry too, bless God. You know, whenever you see these money changers that were in the temple and others like them, these people were known historically as, in these places, as the bazaars of Annas. This was the family business of Annas that got tipped over, drove out of the temple. Extortion was happening. Outside of the temple, when someone came to give their, their offerings, they could buy, according to history, they could buy a pair of doves, which was one of the offerings one could offer up. They could buy a pair of doves for four pence. And the, 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 the currency there of four pence 
that doesn't mean anything perhaps to you, and I'm not going to break it down, but listen to this. Inside the temple where the bazaars of Annas were, getting maybe perhaps a better sacrifice, this has been, this is temple inspected and approved. 75 pence. That's quite a markup. Amen. And so Jesus went in there turning tables, driving out animals. Don't you know that that might have just put a little briar in Annas' saddle that all this took place? So the first place that Jesus is brought is to Annas and then Caiaphas. Give a little identification on Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one, according to the Scripture here, after Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter number 11, it is Caiaphas that was the one that suggested, you know what? If, if we don't do something about this Jesus thing and what's going on, we're going to have mayhem here for our people and for what we do around here. And he suggested at that time, back at Lazarus' resurrection, shortly thereafter, that perhaps one man should die for the people. See, in John 11, you had the Sadducees, which are deeply involved in the Sanhedrin government, uh, chief priest type of people. You had the Pharisees. They're working one with the other, and they didn't know what to do with Jesus. They didn't, they didn't know what to do with him because he's performing miracles that were undeniable, that they couldn't refute, but they didn't know what to do with him. And so the people were believing in him because of his miracles. The people were believing in him because of what was being accomplished. And so the Jewish authorities started to fear Rome would see everything of people coming together around this figure, Jesus, as an uprising, as, as some type of insurrection. And so then Rome, no doubt, they're thinking it's going to come in with their heavy fist and they're going to take away the Jewish temple. This is all in John 11. They're going to take away the Jewish temple. They're going to take away our privilege of being a national people. And yet we can't refute, we can't refute the miracle, miracles that he's doing, so what are we going to do? Caiaphas with his brilliant idea. I tell you what we do. We killed Jesus. To save our nation. His words were more than what he realized he was speaking. He was under the idea and concept of like a political strategy that, you know what, if we make an example of him, then nobody else is going to want to follow suit. Nobody else is going to want to be associated. No one else is going to, you know, if we can just make an example of one person, this thing will be null and void. It will be fine. So if we kill this one man, it'll save our nation. It'll save our temple. Oh, you are forever right in a different way. Because John brings all this back to our memories right now before Jesus' crucifix, before the cross, and states, this is the amplified version, one man, he said, this is what Caiaphas said, one man should die for instead of, in behalf of the people. And everything in that statement just applied a little differently, amen, rings true to the purpose of Jesus even coming to this earth. He died, Jesus did. He died for the people. He is the only man that effectively died for them. Amen. But Caiaphas thought if Jesus died for the people, then the nation of the Jews would be saved. When Jesus' purpose was, if I die for the people, it's not just the nation of the Jews, but the world might be saved. One man dies for them all. And so Jesus is having this conversation. He's brought in. He's brought in before Annas. 
And we transition here just a little bit to Peter. We know, everybody know the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter? We know from the gospels that whenever Jesus was arrested that all the disciples scattered and dispersed and fled. We understand from the gospels, also here from John, that Peter and an unnamed disciple, which is traditionally usually accepted as John, followed the Lord, amen, to the palace. Matter of fact, other the gospels tell us that even Peter followed the Lord at a distance, at a little bit of distance. And the Bible says when they got to this palace that the unnamed disciple, again, traditionally, I'm just going to call him John, traditionally accepted as John, that John went into the palace because he was known. He was known, the high priest knew him. The people of the palace knew him. And so as John goes in, there's Peter standing outside the door because they don't really know him, right? John's got some clout with the government somehow. Amen. Peter doesn't. He stands outside the door. Whenever John realizes this, he goes back to the doorkeeper, has some type of conversation that we're not privy to with her, and then she allows Peter into the palace. Now, is everybody doing okay? It was the responsibility of the doorkeeper to ask a visitor's identity, particularly when they're showing up at night because it is night season right now. Remember, they came with their lanterns and they came with their lamps to arrest Jesus. It is night season right now. And so she asked Peter concerning his identity. Look at it at verse number 17. Art not thou, note this word, also one of this man's disciples. Now, the, the also is important. Because the also indicates that she knew the other unnamed disciple, which we are traditionally accepting as John. She knew he was a disciple of Jesus. And she's just asking, are you also a disciple of Jesus? This blows my mind. You have two disciples of Jesus. John owns it. Peter didn't. They're both going in the same place. They both passed by the same doorkeeper. John owns it. Peter didn't. As a matter of fact, John, whatever, whatever association with Jesus at this moment meant, good or bad, better or worse, it didn't matter. John claimed, didn't mind being seen as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not Peter. John, John has the spirit of roof mentality. Jesus, where you go, I go. Mm-hmm. He has that spirit of Ruth mentality. And perhaps this is the reason why that John is found later at the cross. At the cross, you don't see a big grouping of the disciples hanging around the cross and having a, you know, a group photo and just waiting, you know, and being supportive. No, you find John. You find John at the base of the cross because John, it's better or worse. I'm with you, Lord. You see that it's John that Jesus says, Behold thy mother, mother, behold thy son. And he's talking to John. He gives the responsibility of the care of his mother to John. Why? Because when everybody else goes, John says, I'll be there. I'll be associated with you. I'm not a fleeting disciple. I'm not a fleeting personality in the ministry. I'm dependable. I'm resilient. Just because things get tough, I'm not tucking my tail and running. Just because things don't look real good for us right now or going our way right now, that doesn't mean I don't want to be associated with you. I've seen the miracle. I've seen, I've seen what you can do. 
death is no competition. Can I say tonight, just kind of segue here a little bit. Listen, folks, let's just be sold out to this God thing. Let's just be sold out to this church thing. There's times it feels like you're sitting at the foot of the cross with the church and you're seeing it battered and you're seeing it whipped and you're seeing it bleeding and you're seeing it in a compromising condition. But don't forget the times of the miracles because the season that you may be in now is no competition to what he's capable of. Somebody be resilient. Somebody be dependable. Somebody be so. Don't be a fleeting disciple here and there. When it's good, great. When it's not, count. No, no. Be a part of it. Thick and thin. Shallow, deep. Be a... And as before with Judas, look at verse 18. As before with Judas, it's crucial to notice whom Peter is standing with in verse 18. He's went in. He's already denied the damsel. I'm not one of them. Sorry. And the servants and the officers stood there who made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves. Look at the scripture. And Peter, similar to Judas, stood with them and warmed himself. These are quite probably the very ones that had come to arrest the Lord and apprehended him. And Peter comes into the palace. You don't stand with John. No, because John's already made it known who he's with. No, Peter stands with the opposition. And he warms himself by their fire. I'm not trying to hit the same old nail on the head, but maybe I am. Isn't it amazing how we attempt to blend in when we are in an environment that makes us feel uncomfortable to be ourselves or uncomfortable to associate with him? He blatantly told the doorkeeper, I'm not Jesus' disciple. And so now he supports that same verbiage with his behavior. I'll stand with them. Because it isn't comfortable right now to stand with John and Jesus. I'll stand with John and Jesus when bread is being distributed and multiplied. I'll stand with John and Jesus when the lame man starts walking. I'll stand with, but there's no lame walking right now and there's no bread being distributed. No, Jesus is on trial. There's accusations against him. That's uncomfortable. I'll stand with them. Because I'd hate to blend in with something and feel uncomfortable. I'd hate to be a part of something that was going to make me feel out of place. And so Peter doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be linked with Jesus. Look at verse 19. Because again, Jesus is being questioned by Annas. Might I say, this is a, this is not a uh, formal trial. Annas is kind of being secretive and illegal here. 
I mean, you, they had trials in that day, and you were supposed to speak to the witnesses, not to the defendant. But speak to the witnesses, the person's own words. He was looking for he was looking for a nugget. You know, people talk about pleading the fifth, and they're not going to say anything until they had their lawyer. You know, well, Jesus kind of laying down that trump card right here because he knew what he was trying to do. You're trying to pick up on something that I'll say that you'll be able to use to incriminate me. So Peter, he don't want to be linked with Jesus, and Annas is asking the questions, and this is the question he asked Jesus, verse number 19. He asked Jesus concerning his disciples and his doctrine. I want to know about your following, your followers, and I want to know about your doctrine. Two things that he asked. But notice even the order of them, what he asked about first. I want to know about your company. I want to know about your following. And then I want to know about your system of belief. Annas, he's a political figure, right? Of some sort, really. High priest, yes, among the Jews. But that had some political clout that was with it. Annas was more interested in Jesus's. let me say it like this, in Jesus' numbers than in the legitimacy or even the truthfulness of his doctrine. He put that first. What about your disciples? Folks, (laughs) this is the priority sometimes of society and churches. We're more interested in people's numbers than we are their doctrine. More concerned about the crowd than the legitimacy of the message. So we put it first. Listen, listen to me. The size of the crowd alone should never gauge the effectiveness of the church. Say it again. The size of the crowd alone should never be a gauge for the effectiveness of the church. Amen? The crowd crucified him. The crowd hung him high and left him dry. It was just a few. We must, though, regardless of our size, imperative, regardless of our size, we must be doctrinally sound. The malady today is losing the soundness of darkness as it's shuffled in the crowd. Because who can by any means raise a finger toward anything that's big? They must be doing it. And listen, I'm not here of want to be us for no more type of mentality. I think you know me enough to know that. But I'm saying you don't sacrifice Doctrine on the altar of crowd and numbers. And so, (laughs) for that matter, it shouldn't take an in-depth investigation to discover a church's doctrine. A few weeks ago, I was reading the book of Chronicles. Sister Sheila. 
And as I was reading, it was around 1 Chronicles 21 through 22, and I was reading the whole story again of David wanting to number the people, right? Joab discouraging it. They were not supposed to do that. He's numbering the people. Side note, I understand Moses numbered the people one time. It seemed like nothing happened. And if, is this okay? I, man, I feel like I'm side note. I got to keep track here. Side, whenever he numbered the people in the Hebrew, it is they, he lifted up their head because they had now arrived in the place of close of promise outside of Egypt, and he raised their head. He wanted them to know whatever their name was, you made it out to here. Whole different concept with David numbering the people. He was numbering them for numbers' sake. And so he numbered the people he shouldn't have. And as a result of that, there's going to come destruction on Jerusalem. There was a, many had lost their life because of the numbering. And God told, God told David, he said, David, he said, I want, you, I want you to build an altar on Arnon's threshing floor. And that very spot would later become the location for the temple that was built, the church. And so I scrawled in the, in the edge of my Bible, as I do, Brother James, this statement that, interestingly, the birthplace of the temple, or might I say the birthplace of the church, resulted from David making amends for having numbered the people. It wasn't about numbers. It was God's answer for somebody that was numbering the church. Why so? Because the book of Revelation tells me that in that day, that church, the church, will represent a great multitude that no man can. No man can number. And so Joab rightly said to David in that moment, he said, hey, David, you know, this numbering business, really, you know? He said, if they be few or if they be many, are they not all? Do they not all belong to the same, you know, one, regardless? So Jesus, Jesus shared his t- teaching, as the scripture says in John 18 here, Jesus shared his teaching with the world. He did it in the synagogues. He did it in the temple, right? He did it under the shade of trees. He did it by seashores. I mean, everywhere he went, he did it. And so these are familiar places to the Jews, familiar places for that, for that matter, to the common man. And so Jesus, no, Jesus never kept his doctrine to himself. He never saved it just for a private setting. Wherever he, wherever he went, he was making his doctrine known. For, and since that is the case, he's basically telling Annas, he says, ask whoever you want. Anybody that has heard me ought to know where I stand doctrinally because I haven't kept it as, you know, the trump card in my head and I'm trying to shield. No. Anybody who knows me should know my doctrine. Likewise. Likewise with us. People shouldn't look at us and scratch our head and wonder where we stand with some things. They should know, they should be able to know where we stand concerning doctrine. And so, and Jesus' message said, listen, ask anybody. I've not just saved this for private. And I think there was an undertow of something else that Jesus was conveying was this. What I, what I speak in public is no different than what I speak in private. They're one and the same. It's not like I got a private message to tell that differs from the public message that I tell. 
<laughs> it's not as though what we teach at the church is different than how we live in public. Oh, how baffled people are when they see a life lived in public and they see or hear something different taught in private when they come to the church. You go to that church? Well, by golly, I'd never thought it by your public life. Because public life makes us uncomfortable sometimes and we don't stand with John. We stand by the fire worm in our So, Annas again, he's out of order here. He's, he's got Jesus. He's asking questions. He's trying to incriminate him with his own words. And really, the sad story is this, in my estimation, is that Jesus told Annas, he said, you just ask whoever's heard me. That included his disciples. Just ask my disciples. Ask what they have to say about what I taught and what I preach. So Jesus, here it is. Jesus tells him, well, just, just ask who heard me. Ask my disciples. And people's out in the courtyard asking Peter, are you one of him? He's saying in this place of trial, just ask them. They're out there asking about association. He can't even tell them that he's a part of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not one of them. (laughs) No, 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 no. I ask us tonight as a church, that if the world has questions about Jesus, if the world has questions about his message, will we deny knowing him and will we deny his doctrine? What hope, I I present this, what hope does the world have if his disciples will not proclaim to know him and will not proclaim the message he has proclaimed to them. I state firmly tonight that as the first apostolic church, we need to emulate the Lord. And our message in public needs not differ from our message in private. And no one needs to be guessing where the first apostolic church stands. I hope they can say, look, it's in there. Right in the word of yeah, right. right in the word of God. Look, Jesus, look through the New Testament scripture over and over again. The word comes constantly. Jesus astonished them with his doctrine. He astonished them with his doctrine because he spoke as one having authority because his word was with power. It differed from other people of his day. There was power and authority in the word of Jesus. It wasn't a bedtime story. Oh, God, help me. I'm about ready to get in big trouble. It just wasn't up here sitting. Oh, help me, Jesus. Just not up there sitting on the stool talking about the adventures of life and then bringing application of how peanut butter and jelly sandwich slid off the page and that's how that applies to us as Christians. 
They had a, a lot of other philosophers, a lot of other teachers out there. But when they heard Jesus, they said, wait a minute. Oh, stop the bus. What's going on? That's spoken with authority. That has power. Honey, the written word does that. I don't have to make up a fable. I don't have to comprise a story. I don't have to bring something out of my personal life to woo you. No, no, no. The word of God is powerful and authoritative all by itself. And my little story about going to the grocery store is not going to save you. But the Bible says we're begotten by the word. And so we got to be doctrinally sound. We got to be. Later in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles, look, they picked up on it. The Bible says that they filled Jerusalem. Who are these people? They said that have filled Jerusalem with the doctrine. Filled it with the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul charged Timothy. He said, listen. He said, I've given you doctrine. He said, I don't want you to have anybody else in, 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 in your service that's in your leadership that's going to teach any other doctrine. So I don't want anybody, because uh, here, here's Timothy trying over here, trying to you know, uh, work the church over here. Paul's writing him letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, giving him instruction and everything. He says, hey, other people you bring up under you, they need to speak the same doctrine. That's the reason why we do leadership. That's the reason why we have guidelines and manuals for other people that come up in, in, in leadership because I don't need somebody over here in a Sunday school class somewhere teaching something contrary to what God's Word teaches. I don't need somebody else over here thinking that there's options concerning what name they're baptized in and that they can pick and cherry pick. No, I need it to be according to the doctrine. Yes, sir. According to the doctrine. I'm closing. I really am. Stay with me. I'm, I know that felt like I just let the landing gear and everything just go. First. But no, I'm not. First Timothy 4.13, Paul, again, speaking to Timothy. Verse 13, and I'll read verses 15 and 16 as well. We could put verse 14 in there, but I, this, these are the hit points. Till I come, Paul tells Timothy, give attendance to reading. Now, folks, listen, I love to read. Love to read. But the implication is not your romance novel. That's not what it is. It's not the newspaper. <laughs> Giving it, you say, well, you say give attention to reading. I've read a whole series this week. <laughs> no, 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 no. The implication is the word. The implication is to be in studious of the word. Again, he's speaking to Timothy here. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 15, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly, completely, entirely to them that thy profiting may appear. Look at that. Look at that. To all. What? Yeah. What you feed up on in private is going to show forth in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going out there with your little gravy stain. Oh, you ate gravy today, did you? Why is that? That's well, right there. Well, I had some gravy at home. What you eat in private is going to show up in public. <laughs> right. There's my parable for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sausage gravy. Yeah, it was. Verse 16, take heed. 
unto thyself and unto the doctrine. It, it is important. Oh, God help me. I'm, I don't know. I'm on a, like a mechanical bull tonight. Yeah. Put in another quarter. Doctrine, he said, take heed to thyself and unto the doctrine. Listen, listen, Pastor, listen, listen, listen. If you ever get uncomfortable around here, you just need to say thank you, Jesus. You just, you just need to say thank you, Jesus. Because you go find, your, go find yourself to attend that you're comfortable in, but let doctrine be skewed. Listen, this thing here makes me uncomfortable sometimes. But it's right. It's true. And I don't just need to disengage because my comfort level kind of went. Mm. But people's doing it all the time. They'll change churches the moment they become uncomfortable with something that the preacher says, that the word of God says. They're not uncomfortable with the church. They're uncomfortable with the doctrine. And anywhere they go that's preaching the doctrine, they're going to be uncomfortable. And listen, I need a level of discomfort in my life to keep me here and to keep me here and to keep me here. He says, and to the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So, I ask and I close. Could we who attend the church? And so he said, go, go, ask, go ask the disciples. Go ask them about the doctrine. Everybody with me? So go ask, go ask them about the doctrine. Could we who attend the church? This is very, I want you to think about this. Give a summarization of Jesus' doctrine to those that would ask it of us. Is repentance essential? Baptism, is that by immersion? What name do you use? The Holy Ghost. Wasn't that something just for the first century church, something that was initial only there? The oneness of God. Well, I know that you believe that, that God was in Christ, the man Christ Jesus, but what about the Holy Spirit? What? She said, go ask them. With that being said, then I ask, could by what we say, then convict us as being one of his. I don't want, listen, the trial has ended, so to speak. Calvary has happened but there's the Lord still on trial in a lot of circles. He's still on trial in a lot of circles. And my question is, will we save face and not go the line of denial while he's still on trial? Because he is. I want to be able to say, flat-footed Sister Sheila, I'm one of his. 
Well, it's not looking too good for Jesus right now. That's all right. Just wait three days. He'll change. Not looking too good right now. Just wait three months. Whatever it is, just wait a little bit. It'll change. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.